If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. Let's read our text first, beginning in verse number 14 and going through verse 24. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. We've been looking at the subject of why it is so difficult to believe in today's world. Back when we began this series, we looked at a theology of belief and unbelief. And among the things that we saw is that it is in the arena of spiritual awakening and learning that we come to the matter of belief. And what we find is that those who are made in the image of the Creator are to believe Him. They are to trust Him that what He commands is right and what He promises is true. And if, in fact, you remember the story of the serpent with Eve, these are, in fact, it is a two-pronged attack challenging whether or not what God commanded is right and if what he promised is true. Well, you, you, will, you will surely not die if you eat from that tree. And so Eve chose not to believe God. Belief is seen in obedience. Unbelief is seen in disobedience. She disobeyed God and she ate from the fruit and gave some to Adam to eat. Because of their sin, our default setting as human beings, even though we are made in the image of God, is disobedience and unbelief. When it comes to the matter of belief, we need to ask ourselves, do we truly seek to conform our thinking to reality or do we try to conform reality to our thinking? The Bible's answer to this is a diagnosis of unbelief. And that's what I want to talk about today is unbelief. The central core of unbelief comes from an abuse, a willful abuse of the truth. In dealing with truth, all humans are at the same time both truth seekers and truth twisters. We say we want the truth, and yet we twist the truth. And just as often, we try to conform reality to our thinking rather than our thinking to reality. In the novel by Sir Thomas More, Utopia, one of the characters argues that human beings, quote, are not willing to render their actions to conform to the law of God. Instead, they endeavor to render the laws of God to conform to their actions. Rather than saying, this is what God has said, so I must do this, I have to change my behavior if necessary, 
They seek rather to change the laws of God so that their behavior is fine. Paul wrote in Romans 1, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known of God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So, Simply put, sin and disobedience and unbelief are in fact a deliberate and continuing act of violence to the truth. Unbelief looks at the truth of who God is in God's creation and simply rejects it. It suppresses it. It denies that truth. In the scripture, there are at least four different descriptions of unbelief, four different uh, descriptions, I guess, four different ways in which it is examined. Let me just say at this point, I am extremely grateful to Oz Guinness. He has a new book out called Fool's Talk. It is said to be his magnum opus, which to me is quite amazing because he has done incredible work up to this point. Um, He has, I would say, been one of the two or three greatest influences in in my thinking, and I'm most appreciative of the work he's done. The first thing that scripture tells us about unbelief is that it abuses the truth through a deliberate act of suppression. That is to say, here's the truth, unbelief takes it and violently, if you wish, suppresses it. Um, It silences its voice. God has a purpose for the truth, but unbelief says, no, we will have none of that, and it suppresses that truth. By itself, the truth speaks naturally and clearly, but unbelief will not have it. It seeks to silence it. It will not allow truth to do what it does naturally. This is what we hear in Romans chapter 1, that in fact people suppress the truth by their wickedness. But we find it and we hear it throughout Scripture. In Job 21.14, Yet they say to God, Leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. In Psalm 50, You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. In Jeremiah 5, they have lied about the Lord. They said, he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. That is to say, what he has promised, in fact, will not come to pass. The truth is there, but it is, in fact, suppressed. In a real sense, rejected. The second thing that scripture tells us about unbelief is that it abuses truth through a deliberate act of exploitation. So beyond suppressing it and twisting it, unbelief forces its own agenda. It twists the truth, it suppresses the truth so that it can put forward what it believes or what it wants to say is the truth. In Micah chapter 3, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Here's the truth, if you wish, it is straight and it is exploited, it is twisted by, in in Micah's case here, those who are in positions of authority. The third thing we see in Scripture is that unbelief abuses the truth through a deliberate act of inversion. It turns truth completely upside down, inside out, and holds it there for its own purposes. And we shouldn't be surprised, because creatures, in fact, have sought to put themselves in the place of the Creator. That is to say, we choose to believe our own lies rather than God's truth. We make ourselves gods instead of God. In John Milton's Paradise Lost, you're probably familiar 
And Satan said, it is better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But he also said, evil be thou my good. A a twisting, a turning upside down. John Paul Sartre said, to be man means to reach toward being God. Nietzsche said, if there were gods, how could I endure not to be a god? If If there is in fact a god, I want to be God. Sin, by its very nature, involves the claim, the right to myself, to be in the place of God. But in a very strange way, we become not only our own idols, but we become idol worshippers. But I think we're not aware of this. We hide this truth from ourselves. We hear this in Scripture. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. It's from Ezekiel 28. And then from Isaiah 29, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? But this is precisely what unbelief does. It reverses or it seeks to reverse positions that we get to tell God what he can and cannot do. And the fourth thing that scripture tells us about unbelief is that it abuses truth through a deliberate act of deception that ends in its own self-deception. Here is the truth. Deny it all you want, it is still there. But in a futile act of denying the truth, unbelief deceives others, but it also deceives itself. You see, unbelief not only manufactures idols, I think it was John Calvin who said that the heart is an idol factory, it makes idols, but it is also an illusion factory, it creates illusions. As one person put it, as our hearts can't stop pumping blood, our minds can't stop pumping illusions. How does this happen? How does it happen? Well, human human beings believe that they have, in fact, the right to their own view of things. But since we are finite, our view of things is, of necessity, very restricted. We can't see the whole picture. And just to give you an example of this, you know, when somebody says about something, that is the worst thing in the history of humanity, you're like, really, you know everything about the history of humanity? Or when a stubborn child says to a parent, you're the worst mom or the worst dad. Really, you know all the moms, all the dads in the world? Well, this is a form almost of unbelief, claiming to know far more than you do. But since people believe I have a right to my own opinion, they become blinded to everything else. Everything that doesn't match theirs, doesn't fit their view, especially God's, is rejected. N.T. Wright has noted that trees behave as trees, rocks as rocks, and the seas as seas. But only humans have the capacity to live as something other than what they are. A key part of deception and self-deception is that evil must imitate good. Evil has, has to put on the front and pretend to be good. And unbelief must copy truth. And vice must mimic virtue. So where we should, in fact, be grateful, trusting, and humble, we, in fact, find ourselves filled with pride and putting ourselves at the center of things. 
We hear this in scripture in Proverbs 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. He thinks he's right. Augustine put it this way, brilliantly, I might add, in my opinion. Man's love of truth, that is, human beings love truth, is such that when he sees some, when he loves something that is not the truth, he pretends to himself that what he loves is the truth, and because he hates to be proved wrong, he will not allow himself to be convinced that he is deceiving himself. So he hates the real truth for what he takes to his heart in its place. I think it's, a, it's brilliant. That is to say, we love something, and so this must be true, this must be real. But then when we find out it's not, we are unwilling to acknowledge that, and so we reject the true truth, if you wish, and we take this false truth to be our new truth. And we are deceived. Now, this critique might seem a bit harsh, that Augustine, after all, that was, what, 16 centuries ago, and we've progressed a lot since then. Uh, that deception is not really part of what human beings do today, or self-deception. Um, I would beg to disagree. If we begin with impression management and move from there to think of the many ways in which our society has given us the capacity for deception, the improved science of selling, propaganda, manipulation, but this is not new. This isn't simply a modern thing. I think we have raised it to new heights or new depths, depending on your point of view. But Blaise Pascal wrote centuries ago, human society is founded on mutual deceit. We lie to each other. We lie to ourselves. Are we surprised? In our prayer of confession today, we read the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So what we see is that Unbelief in scripture is described as that which suppresses the truth, that which seeks to exploit the truth, that which inverts the truth, so it is no longer the truth, and self-deception. And in the process, we find ourselves looking into the heart of darkness, the human heart, as the Bible understands it. Unbelief is just one expression of this rebellion, this darkness that we find in our hearts. Which means, in part, and I think this is important, we should never think of unbelief or view unbelief as theoretical or as neutral. That a person is here and they don't believe, but it's not like they're not believing, they just, they're not sure what they should do. Or we shouldn't think of unbelief as simply a worldview that people have. Os Guinness writes in his book, However suave and cool its attitudes and however rational its arguments may sometimes appear to be, unbelief is different in its heart. Deep down, the unbelieving heart is active, willful, deliberate, egotistic, devious, scheming and unrelenting in its open refusal, its deliberate rebellion and its total resistance to God and the full truth of his reality. And even though unbelief seeks to suppress the truth and exploit and invert and deceive, the truth is still the truth. Now, as I was preparing this, I thought some might object that this is far too harsh a critique of unbelief. 
that there are those who are seeking to believe. There are those who are sincere in their search. After all, the man in our text today wants his son to be healed. But it it seemed like it was just too much. I mean, ever since he was a child, the the son had been oppressed by this this spirit. And this father wants him to be healed, but it, it just doesn't seem possible. And so there's a tension, and we see it in this man, and we see it in ourselves. We have the logic of God's truth pulling us in one way. Here's Jesus, a prophet sent by God, who has in fact healed many people. On the other hand, we have the logic of unbelief that says no one has ever done this before. And in fact, his disciples can't do it. It probably can't be done. And the man says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He finds himself in a place of tension. What adds to the tension is this. If everyone in the world accepted God's truth as it is, there would be no need to persuade anyone because people, in fact, would believe the truth. And yet, if everyone lived in the world that they claim is true, we would have no, no possibility of speaking the good news to them because they'd be living on a different planet. The reality is people live with one foot in each camp. The logic of God's truth leads us to see that he is God. The logic of unbelief leads to disaster. And we find ourselves in tension between the two. Francis Schaeffer observed in his book, The God Who's There, the more logical a non-Christian is to his own presuppositions, the further he is from the real world. And the nearer he is to the real world, the more illogical he is to his presuppositions. Let me flesh this out if I can. The unbelieving heart and mind lives between two poles, or two axes, if you wish. One is the dilemma pole, the other is the diversion pole. This is from Oz Guinness' book. The dilemma pole can be put this way. The more consistent people are to their view, their view of reality, the farther away they are from God's truth and God's reality. And the more likely they are to feel the tension or the pain of their dilemma. So, the more consistent people are to their point of view, the more difficult their life will be in this world. On the other hand, the less consistent that they are, the closer they are to God's world. Schaefer told the story and... Um, I remember him getting quite emotional about it, that years ago at Libri, he had a man come in and they were talking and he was meeting one-on-one with Schaefer. And Schaefer's talking about the world, I mean, where the Swiss Libri is, it's just spectacular. It's in the Alps, it's beautiful. And he was talking about creation. And the man said, well, this is not real. This is, this is an illusion. This, from his theological viewpoint, if you wish, his belief, this world is not real. And Schaefer said, Quite wisely, I think. He said, okay, you and I are going to meet next week. What I want you to do for the next seven days is live as though this world is not real. You say it's not real. Live as though it's not real. You see, because a lot of people say that the world isn't real, but they live as though it is. The next week, the man came to see Schaefer, and his face, body, he was all banged up and all scratched up. 
because he had tried to live as though the world was not real. He tried to walk through trees. He tried to walk through walls and doors. He was being consistent to his worldview. And it was a very painful process. The reality is, many people say things, but they don't live that way. That is the diversion pool. The dilemma pool is those who, in fact, believe this is the way things are, and they try to live consistently with their point of view. I hope I'm explaining this well. Um, A person who tries to be consistent, who says, I do not believe, I do not believe the truth, and tries to live in that light, in fact, will find themselves, I think they're quite courageous, far more courageous than the people on the other side. But in fact, what we find is they can't live that way because they live in God's world. If God is dead, as many claim, then everything that has depended upon God must go. And here we find a difference between, let's say, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, and the English atheists of the 19th century. Nietzsche was more consistent, but very uncomfortable. The English atheists were less consistent, but far more comfortable. In the 20th century, the difference between Sartre and Camus, for example, Sartre was more consistent to his atheism, but also very cold. Albert Camus was inconsistent, but warm. One person wrote it this way. Camus continues to think despair, even to write it, but he lives hope. That is, as an unbeliever between the dilemma of, I don't believe this, but then the diversion, you find yourself saying one thing, but living in a different way. John Gray, in a book that came out, I think, in 2007, Straw Dogs, Some Thoughts on Humans and Other Animals, writes, uh, well, he's against humanists. He is a non-humanist atheist. And he lambasts them for their unwarranted borrowing of concepts such as freedom and human dignity. If the Jewish and Christian faiths are false, then freedom would dissolve before determination and the notion of human dignity being made in the image of God. If you reject the truth, then, in fact, you find yourselves in a position, an uncomfortable position, but a position in which you seek to be consistent to your beliefs. I think one, this might help explain, compare the 60s with the 70s. Those of us who are older, some of you weren't born at that point, but the 60s were known as a time of revolution. This is, in fact, when people tried to live consistently with their worldviews. People got tired of that, and so in the 70s, we find the me decade. We find people wanting to live a comfortable life. So we would say in the 60s, people were far more consistent, but in the 70s, they were less consistent, but far more comfortable. Let me see again if I can explain this a bit more. The dilemma poll is, less cons- is more consistent, it is less comfortable, It is far more courageous. And it is something we find throughout Scripture. 
There's several themes that come in this vein. The first is we become what we worship. If we are consistent in our unbelief, we become what we worship. We read in 2 Kings 17, it's telling us it's the end of the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel. And this is what the writer says. They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. And then we read in Jeremiah of the southern kingdom, Judah. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. And then we have that famous passage in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. If one chooses to live in radical unbelief, we should not be surprised that they become like the thing that they worship. The second thing we see is that we reap what we sow. Judgment in the Bible is not capricious. It isn't random. It isn't arbitrary. But oftentimes it is simply God letting someone live the way they want to live. Uh, we find this in the book of Romans, chapter 1. I read a couple of verses earlier. But if you read the second half of the chapter three times, Three times Paul talks about the consequences of people's sins. And each one begins with these words, God gave them over to. Three times. So whatever you want to do, fine. You do that. Whatever you sow, that's what you will reap. There are not many people who live in this realm, by the way. It's the second one that where we find most people today, the diversion pole. It's more crowded, but also less understood, I think, in many ways, because we're probably part of that crowd more than we are the dilemma crowd. Remember that the less consistent people are with their beliefs, the closer they are to God's reality. But they will not accept God's reality. They will not bow before God's truth. And so they get involved more and more and more in diversion It's something that keeps them busy, something that distracts them, something behind or in which they can hide. Again, this is not a purely modern thing, but Blaise Pascal wrote in his Ponces, I have often said that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his own room. Even then, people needed to be distracted, to be diverted. He went on to say, being unable to cure death, wretchedness, and misery, men have decided, in order to be happy, not to think about such things. Let's not think about these, so we don't have to worry about them. One author wrote, the people I respect the most behave as if they were immortal and society was eternal. Both assumptions are false. Both of them must be accepted as true if we are to go on eating and working and living and are to keep a few few breathing holes for the human spirit. In other words, you live as though you're immortal. You live as though society's eternal. You know it's not true. But if, if you face reality, then you'd really be in trouble. So by doing this, it's like putting an animal in a box. You poke holes so there's air that, so they can breathe. That's what diversions are. They're these air holes so that we can breathe. 
people have surrounded themselves with diversions to keep their minds off the ultimate reality, including the fact that we are all going to die. It used to be that the rich and powerful were the people who could be diverted. Everybody else was just trying to stay alive. But in the modern world with technology, we are surrounded by diversions of all possible kinds. So much so that they have been called by one weapons of mass distraction. Who who needs to think beyond the here and now when we are surrounded and equipped by so many diverting forces? Whatever the source of diversion, what we end up doing is living what Socrates called the unexamined life. This goes, by the way, a long way to explain why such people have no time for the good news. They are so unreasonable in the rejection of the truth. They're not thinking. I mean, that's part of the problem. They're not thinking, but they're not thinking in terms of truth. They are, in fact, simply trying to be distracted and diverted. And if, in fact, you want to share the truth with them, then they have to leave what they are doing and come in almost to another room so that they can sit down and listen. And for the most part, people simply do not want to do that. In the scripture, we find this discussed as well. That no matter where your diversion comes from, it is futile before God. Listen to what Isaiah writes. You boast we have entered into a covenant with death. Quite staggering. We've entered into a covenant with death. And with the grave we have made an agreement. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it cannot touch us. For we have made a a life our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. I'm sorry, we've made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. How deceived are you if you think you can enter into an agreement with the grave and with death that nothing can hurt you? How foolish to think you can put up a barrier of lies. Listen to what Jeremiah records. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hope. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of God. But they didn't listen to Jeremiah. And in the book of Lamentations, which is written after Judah goes into captivity, the visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The oracles they gave you were false and misleading. Judah went into captivity. We also see that diversion may be, in fact, satisfactory in the short term, but in the long term, it is disastrous. Diversions are illusions. They are like illusions. They work well all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden, they are gone. Isaiah 29, as when a hungry person dreams of eating, but awakens hungry still, as when a thirsty person drinks of drink, dreams of drinking, but awakens faint and thirsty still, so it will be with the hordes of all the nations that fight against Mount Zion. In your dreams you eat, but when you wake up you're still hungry. In your dreams you drink, but when you wake up you're still thirsty. In the short term the dream seems to satisfy, but in the reality is you need to eat and you need something to drink. Again from Isaiah, therefore this is what the Holy One of Israel says, because you have rejected this message, that is truth, 
relied on oppression and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. The philosopher Francis Bacon said that hope is a good breakfast, but a bad supper. See, you eat supper and then you have to go to bed. Breakfast, it's the beginning of the day, so maybe something good will turn out after all. The strategy of diversion allows many people to mask what's really going on in their lives. And it gives them a sense that they might, in fact, have hope beyond what they really do. Okay, for all of what I've said today, I hope that what we have come to understand is that unbelief is an act of the will. It is a habit of the mind shaped by choice. Let me repeat that. Unbelief is an act of the will and a habit of the mind shaped by choice. We live in a culture of unbelief that is marked by real hypocrisy. That is to say, people say this is what they believe, but in fact, they don't live that way. People say that there is no God, and yet they talk about love and human dignity and freedom and all these things that come from God. They are not consistent. They live in unbelief. And ultimately, they will not bow before God. They will not humble themselves before God. This is the world we live in. This is the culture you and I live in. And if we are not careful, we will find ourselves living in unbelief. We will, in fact, find ourselves saying one thing, but living in a different way altogether. When we do it, by the way, it's called hypocrisy. And that it is. But when other people do it, that's simply what everyone is doing. They're saying one thing, but doing another. I remember... uh, I know Dave was here. I think, Rosa, you might have been with us as well when we went to uh, here, Mangawadi, at the Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And he mentioned that Time Magazine had done a survey on vegetarianism. Uh, And what they found was that 60% of the people who said they were vegetarians said they'd had meat in the last 24 hours. Well, then you're not a vegetarian. Okay? Now, one could argue that's not a moral issue. But I think it really illustrates what we find in our society today with regard to unbelief, that people will say this, but they act in a very different way. As those who have the good news, I think it would be easier for us to talk to people who are consistent with their beliefs. Because then we could say, look, this is what you believe, but look at the consequences of your action." But the vast majority of people we know in our society are on this side, the other side, in which they are not consistent with their beliefs, but it doesn't bother them because they're simply too busy being distracted and being diverted. And when you say, listen, I want to talk to you about something serious and important, I have no time. They simply do not have the time. Because the gospel is not a distraction. The truth is not a distraction. It's not diverting. It deals with ultimate issues. (laughs) That's what they're trying to avoid. 
That's why they're being distracted. They don't want to think about these things. By the way, whenever there is a disaster or when there are difficulties, when there's a national crisis, suddenly you find a lot of people moving from over here to over here because they've had to face the reality that, you know, your iPhone can't save you from terrorists. I don't think it can. Or from any natural disaster. It might be able to distract you in the meantime, you know, before all these bad things happen. Um, And I think we find ourselves, if we're not careful, thinking the same way. Yes, we are here today. It is Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. We're with God's people. There are certain things we say we believe, and yet we find ourselves not acting consistently, and we find ourselves seeking to be distracted rather than facing the truth of who God is and who he's called us to be. The Lord willing, we'll continue this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, a part of us wants to cry out with this Father, we do believe, help us overcome our unbelief. And yet if we'd be honest, oftentimes we just don't have the time to be bothered. We're too busy being distracted. We're being diverted by so many things. We are surrounded by diversion. And some of it is, is, is good stuff. It's, it's not worthless. But oftentimes it occupies our minds and our lives and we fail to consider the ultimate issues of life. We pray for the people that we come in contact with, that you would give us wisdom as to how we are to speak to them. But more than that, that you would give us wisdom as to how we are to live consistently as your people. And understand that unbelief is not some theoretical issue, some neutral position that people take. It is, in fact, an act of disobedience. It seeks to suppress the truth, to twist the truth, and the process deceives. Help us to think about these things in the coming days. And by your grace, by your spirit, put these things into practice in our lives. That we would be lights in a world of darkness rather than lights under a bushel. I thank you that we could meet together today. We pray for those that will be traveling, for uh, Jesse and Gracie as they come back, for the G's as they go to Albuquerque, for the novelists as they go to Hawaii, that you would watch over them and keep them safe. We're so grateful on this Sunday to have Mabel Naomi with us, to have Oscar with us as well, to a long absence. Thank you for your goodness to us. And now may your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.